This is Take Flight with Mark Whittle. I'm Mark Whittle, former city worker turned performance coach, and this is your place for inspiration and education on ways to optimise your performance. Thanks for choosing to Take Flight. Jeff. Welcome to the Take Flight Podcast. So excited to be here, Mark. This is so much fun. Oh, I'm so excited to be here too. Um, I was on the other side of the table. Right? (laughs) Literally just the other day. (laughs) So... uh, Thank you for having me back, yeah. and uh, this time I get to dive into your story. Absolutely. I'm an open book. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I'm excited. So um, just to share with the listeners, I've just sampled my first uh, Carver root extract, which I can feel coursing through <laughs> Coursing through your veins. Yeah. Yeah. This could, will be fun. It could be a good or a bad thing. <laughs> let's, let's see what happens. So I kind of know you at the normal level, so it'll be interesting to see <laughs> if there's any change yeah. in that yeah. level. Yeah. You let me know. Yeah, I will. For sure. So look, before we start- Yeah. Former Navy SEAL and then a long-standing uh, director of training at one of the biggest gun ranges in the US. Mm-hmm. And then talk about the business that you're running day to day now. So Trident Concepts is the main business and we've been uh, running that show now for next month. It'll be 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that long. Okay. Yeah. So to share with the listeners and people who are watching on YouTube will, will know because we would have had some content that precedes yeah, this, yeah. which That's shows true. what we did. Yeah. But yesterday morning, you were kind enough to take us on your Saturday mm-hmm. to the range in Austin for my first experience ever shooting a gun. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize. Well, you had mentioned you'd done some pheasant stuff. So yeah, I yeah. just... But uh, that's cool. Yeah. I did not realize that. Yeah. <laughs> so I was uh, blessed with being trained by former Navy SEAL and the, you know, the, the man. Like, yeah. It doesn't get much better, right? Well, thank you for that. I feel like that's one of my responsibilities as a, kind of like a tenured professor of sorts in the industry is to ensure that there are avenues for people such as yourself to explore and kind of like dive into at their own pace yeah. and figure out if this is something that they like or at least to get a little bit more information than what's available online or books or any of those other resources that are still sometimes valuable, but sometimes there's also a barrier that keeps people from truly appreciating or understanding. Mm. Well, that's so interesting you say understanding because the biggest lesson I took, yes, it was enjoyable, it was mm-hmm. exciting, it, yeah. was, it was absolutely outside of my comfort zone, which has been the theme of this trip is trying things for the first time. Yeah stepping outside my comfort zone with the best in, of the best in yeah. what I do. So that was one side of it. But the understanding, I think, was huge. Somebody who's from Britain, who has not been exposed to guns ever. Right. I had an experience earlier in the week where I saw someone's like safe. It had like 30 guns in it, <laughs> which, to be honest, like I felt kind of uneasy. Yeah. It's just so far away from my culture. But spending the time with you and really learning about it. Yeah. Like learning, A, how to use the gun, how it works, and how to use it safely. But also learning about the history, the Second, Am- the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. You said the Second Amendment protects the First Amendment, right. and and some things and perspectives I just hadn't considered before. So For I sure. think that was that was really interesting. We have a, an interesting history, you know, much like your history, our history was basically fought for. You know, we fought for our independence, we fought for all sorts of things. So guns are a part of our history, and some people are unaware of that. In your case, like the the true like how deep it runs through our culture, our society, if you will. I like to think that even though we have evolved, quote unquote, to a civilized society, you know, at at our core, we're still primal animals of sorts that have, you know, desires to either protect or to hurt. And it just depends on what side of the spectrum you are on. And firearms are and, you know, they can be used both to protect and to hurt. And it just depends on what side of the spectrum you are on yeah. with firearm. Yeah. 
it's fascinating. I know we were talking at length about it yesterday, and, and from my view, I still hold these views, but the the assassinations and the threats on schools mm. is like so tragic and mm. and that's a lot of what we see in the media over in the UK and in Europe mm-hmm. but it was interesting hearing your views on that and how you talked about like safe zones and mm. non-safe zones so I think it'd be great if we could have a yeah insight. so the one thing that I try to get across to people is that uh, you know the gun-free zones that are li- typically what uh, we reference as a school zone is also referenced as a criminal empowerment zone because there is nobody to stop a criminal or somebody that would want to do harm, evil, from stopping them at all. We've changed some of our perspectives on that. I hope that more people recognize that you know you can have as many well wishes as you want. You can put as many signs on the wall that say no guns as you want. But the bottom line is that that individual has a choice and they can either choose to follow the law, like most law-abiding citizens, or they can choose to not follow the law, which defines a criminal. I mean, criminals, by definition, do not follow the law. So that is unfortunately the situation that we have to deal with. So I'm not I'm not a fan of gun-free zones. I don't feel like they do really what... They're more of a feel-good measure than a practical measure at stopping violence. To add some context, because I was asking you about it yesterday. Yes, please. And it was like... The fear of, you know, if, for example, if I brought my family over here to live here, I'd probably be scared yeah. to have my kid go to school. For sure. And stuff. But the the culture, the history, the tradition, in particularly in Texas, but in the US in general, yeah. is that there are guns available. Yeah. Um, and when I brought that up to you, you said, yeah, that, that's true. But there was something around like, it was around how you would decriminalize it now and, and what efforts that would take that we're so far down the path, essentially. Sure. You know, there's like that, that phrase, which is, uh, talks about r- rivers and the mm. route down the river, like, and you go down one bend and mm-hmm. then you're so far down the river that it's very hard to go back or to change so anything. So true. So, you know, even if we had the ability to enact a, a, a piece of legislation that would uh, make guns illegal overnight, the... The reality is that the law-abiding citizens are who are affected by that law. In all laws, every legislation that's out there, the only people that really are in, are affected are those that are willing consciously to follow the law. If they're not willing to follow the law, then none of that legislation is going to work. And so when you take away all the law-abiding citizens' rights to defend themselves which to me is one of the most important things that you have. You own that. You own your ability to protect your own life and the life of your family members or who you love. When that is stripped from you or the means is stripped from you, then you are left. Now the entire country becomes a gun-free zone mm-hmm. because the, I mean, the criminal element is in no way contemplating ever turning their guns in or or following the law in the first place. You know, mm. they're not going to stop at that doorway that says do not bring a gun inside and question that. Hmm. Maybe I should maybe I should follow the law. If their intention from the beginning was to break the law, then that's not going to stop them in any way shape or form. So then what we're left with is we're left and the other thing I try to get across to people is that I'm not particularly knowledgeable about response time in the UK, police response time in the UK. I don't know how fast or slow that is. But what I always remind people is that no matter what, that response time is generally never going to be helpful. Uh, the only way, like, we, we make a joke about this, it's much easier to carry a fireman and protect yourself than to carry a policeman 
to protect you. Mm. And it's a lot easier to carry the gun than it is to carry the police officer because unfortunately response time, no matter how fast, is a is a reactionary measure. It's always going to come after the fact. It's yeah. not going to necessarily, unless the crime was committed in the presence of law enforcement, they're always going to be responding. And even here in the, in the States, and, and it varies across the country, response times are pretty damn good. I mean, you know, they joke, you know, call, call a cab, call a pizza company, and call police and see who arrives first. And it just depends on what city you're in. So my recommendation to people is to, to, to factor that in. What are you going to do in those moments where you have to wait for the police to arrive? How do you, how do you manage that? And that's one of those other things, because even if it's two minutes, I mean, you were on the mats for, what, five-minute rounds? Mm -hmm. So imagine that. Imagine five minutes of violence that you have no control over. At least you had some control over that. But imagine five minutes of not having any control over the violence that you are being subjected to. That's the reality. That's what I try to get across to people is like, what are you going to do in those moments? And if you have a plan, great, awesome. You know, if that plan includes using a firearm, that's even better. If that plan is something that you think is going to work, great. I always remind people that the best laid plans seldom survive contact with the enemy. The bad guy always has a choice. So no matter how good your plans are, you're probably still going to have to deal with the fact that mm. it may not work. But does does having, because what we're talking about here is the right to defend yourself, essentially, sure. right? Yeah. But does having guns make the likelihood of something bad happening to you higher? You mean accidentally, like for, from just being in possession of a firearm? I just or? mean in general, does like just mm. the fact that that's even an option for people, does that make it more likely? Because then we get into a little bit of a sort of hamster wheel scenario where, well, I'm getting a gun because you're getting a gun and you're getting sure, a gun because sure, sure. they've got a gun, you know? So there, there's obviously that, that is a scenario that I'm sure does exist. Mm. I have seen what I've seen, particularly when people become more aware of so whenever we start talking about self-defense, we also start talking about deadly force and what it means to apply or use deadly force. And regardless of what your thoughts are on deadly force, you know, we're all capable of deadly force. And so when you start to get down into that subject, I always try to get uh, like one thing I try to get across to somebody is that when you are truly understanding of deadly force and the laws as it relates to deadly force, you become much more cognizant of that. And so the hotheads, the short tempers, um, you know, the road rage of sorts becomes a little less likely simply because you're more knowledgeable about the aftermath, the consequences, the mm. circumstances that you're in. It's what we allude to is what we call the polite society, meaning that if everybody's armed, you're far less likely to go around hotheaded. You're far less likely to, um, to be confrontational. You're far less likely to actually do things that could, in a sense lead to deadly force because subconsciously or even consciously you're so aware that if it does go that that route there could be like a well a permanent solution right? absolutely okay interesting. so that's the and, and the polite society is one where you know it's fictitious obviously because it mm. doesn't really exist but it's a it's an idea it's like utopia of sorts yeah, yeah. when when people have a mutual respect for one another when they recognize that you have every right to live just as I have every yeah. right to live we treat one another differently. Yeah. And as a result, we have what we theoretically reference as a polite society. That's, that's really interesting, Jeff, because I think one of, the, one of the thoughts I had around it or beliefs is that, you know, I don't trust anyone with my life, you know? <laughs> but if, we're, if, it, if that's what is happening psychologically, that it's shifting towards this illusion of a polite society, then, then maybe, that, maybe you're right that it's less likely to lead to some violence. 
Every place is going to be a little different. We have 50 different states. They have their own identities. They have their own laws. They have their own cultures themselves. So nothing is ever going to be perfect. Nothing ever going to be a, 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 a broad sweeping stroke that's going to fix everything. But there are states that have embraced that, that have recognized that, that have been more inclined to encourage personal responsibility of your personal safety. Mm. You know, they recognize that police can't be around everywhere. Uh, they value their constituents. They recognize that they're important, not just to their livelihoods as a politician or, or, or as an employee of the city, but as humans. And so they encourage it. And you can see a kind of different shift in those locations versus one that doesn't feel like you're mature enough, mm. smart enough, capable enough to handle a firearm or be in charge or be around a firearm. Yeah. That, to me, is where I feel like there's a big difference. Mm. And I know that's part of your mission to educate people and Absolutely. help them understand that. And, Absolutely. And yeah, grateful that you, you did that for us yesterday. Well, it was, it, and again, I, the reason why I find it so uh, important is because like, th there's a lot of there's a lot of information that I would go so far as to say is wrong, but there's also a lot of information that's just misunderstood. Yeah. And if you're only hearing it from one side of the fence, it becomes the mm. de facto truth. Mm. But if you have the opportunity to kind of get it from both sides, then you as an intelligent individual can take that information, digest it, and then make your own informed decision yeah. or opinion, mm -hmm. which I feel is like even more important. I love that, Jeff. And that's what... Um, if I was to take, you know, pinpoint the biggest takeaway from yesterday's experience, it was noticing where I might come to a conclusion or a judgment without enough education or information. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. having sat with you and been able to ask questions and challenge sometimes. Yeah, and, for sure. Absolutely. And, but then hear your side, you know, which is obviously, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that it's from someone who's so well versed in it you know, having come from the SEALs background and all the stuff you do around mm -hmm. training with, with using guns now, it completely, not, not completely, but it just allowed me to recognize where I'm not perhaps doing that. Because I, I would have, I wouldn't say I was in either camp, but if I was in one, it was in the anti-guns for sure because of the media mm. and only hearing about these attacks on the schools. So sure. of course then my brain says, you've got to ban guns, <laughs> you know, because that's the way to stop it. For sure. But what I noticed was, you know, it's kind of, it's wasted energy to form opinions when you don't have the education and the knowledge. It certainly is. Well, what it happens a lot of times is you become, you become a puppet hmm. for the side that is predominantly voicing a opinion. Yeah. Without the other side, you, you, and the way I look at it is like if you have both sides of the information and you make your own informed decision, you're no longer being, the strings are cut. Yeah. You've cut the strings from whoever is giving you that information. The, the Pinocchio story, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You've cut the strings and you are your own person. You yeah. make your own decisions. Yeah. Without that, you literally are still tied to those strings. You're mm. still kind of a puppet on, you know, kind of beholden to whoever's mm. pulling the strings. And the and the onus is on us to exactly. seek the advice. Exactly. Like, ignorance is a 100%. choice. So, yeah, I, I certainly think having spent the morning with you, having shot guns, for the first time, yeah. like I have a, certainly have a newfound respect for a firearm. For sure. I have a newfound respect for people in the military. Like, nice. you know, even really like, yeah. because to see that and even like the weight of these things and loading was hard, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, I told you. Yeah. And people walking around the desert carrying all this kit and yeah. stuff and like, you know, the power to very closely align to the jujitsu message really, but the power to hold a weapon like that and use it at the right time. 
um, true. is uh, was something I wasn't exposed to before. I have lots of friends from the military as mm-hmm. well, and I, I I've always got on with them from a humour yeah. place because I was just in sports. So yeah, it's yeah, a kind of yeah, same thing, But yeah. now I have a newfound respect for for that side. Well, that's a huge bonus. That's an that's an extra kind of like piece of uh, silver lining, if you will. Yeah. I think you know one of the other things that we try to get across to people is that. And I feel like you did a really good job of that on this entire trip, first of all, which is putting yourself in that position that seems at the beginning very uncomfortable. Mm. And then through that uncomfort zone, if you will, you start to then become not necessarily more comfortable, but more knowledgeable about what makes you uncomfortable. And that helps you to start to figure out why am I uncomfortable with this? And for a lot of it, we, we figured out that it was the messages that you are exposed to have, uh, you know, for, for mo- most, most, the way I would look at it, mostly a very one-sided opinion. You know, they're not necessarily truthful on all fronts. But, well, my, well, my thinking was, if I do this, I'm supporting... I'm stepping into one camp and I'm supporting what I currently understand as the thing that causes these tragic events in schools. Sure. Right? Versus what I know deeply is that there's polarity in everything, right? So with the gun Absolutely. law, there's polarity. Yeah. There's there's bad people who have guns. There's good people who have guns. Sure. And I was lucky to spend time with a good person <laughs> who had guns That's so true. I could see the other yeah. side, right? Just a quick update. I have settled down after this carver. <laughs> oh my God. For a second there, I was looking for the door for some fresh air. <laughs> I was like, I, you, you're like, I was kind of like watching at first, you know, the first couple of sips, like woo, you were lit up. Yeah, if, uh, wow. <laughs> well, if, good. Welcome back. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I was honestly, for a second, I was, I was like, talking about out of my comfort zone. <laughs> so well, uh, there you go. If anyone is considering trying carve a route, do uh, go slowly. <laughs> <laughs> Moderation is the key. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, one of the other things too, and just to help put a perspective on, okay, on the one side, you're talking about the subject of school shootings and mass shootings for that matter. Because it doesn't have, you know, these mass shootings are not inclusive to schools only. They happen in a lot of other, uh, in fact, where they really, like school shootings have been around for a while. We had, um, I can remember I was in a, uh, this is how far back I go, I was in a Kmart. We were relocating uh, after I left the military and Columbine had happened and we watched it on TV live in the Kmart on all that bank of TV uh, screens. And shortly thereafter, you know, we, we got involved in the uh, trying to help law enforcement to discover new tactics to help confront the, the new threat that they were experiencing. And one of the things that you know, I, I try to share with people is that, you know, these are, these happen and these have been happening for a while. I really studied one of the things that I did in the military was work in the intelligence field. Mm-hmm. So gathering intelligence and looking at it and defining like what that means and how we cope with that from the assault side is very important. So I looked at a lot of the, I looked at the history behind active shooters and it went back quite a ways and particularly in the schools. But then when I started to look outside of the schools, you saw it happening in just about every, you know, every industry of sorts has it. And so, you know, I don't want to necessarily be solely inclusive of it only happening in schools. The trend and the pattern or the commonality was that it happened in locations that were quote unquote gun free. So that's the reason why I still kind of push that, that idea. But on the other side, and while these are all tragic events, they still happen at a much slower or lo- less 
interval than the daily events of personal crime, personal, you know, like you being the subject of any of the five violent crimes. That's murder, that's rape, kidnapping, assault. Oh, the fifth one is escaping me right now. But being subject to one of those violent crimes and your ability to protect yourself, that happens on a daily basis in the thousands. And many of those instances are also thwarted because the victim, in this case, the good guy, was armed with a firearm and was able to to defend themselves and stop the crime from happening. And the problem that we have, and I mentioned this yesterday, is that there's no really good statistics for that because technically the crime isn't reported. And so without a data bank of information, it's hard to understand the value between the daily occurrences of crime that was averted or a violent crime that was averted because the victim was able to do something, in this case, use present, brandish a firearm. Yeah. So all of those instances, all of those occurrences that happen every day would, in a sense, go away if a law were to be enacted that stripped them from their ability to defend themselves, yeah. namely being able to possess a firearm. Yeah. So that's the other part, that's the other side of the equation. It's like, okay, wh- where, wh- this, is, this is terrible, this is horrible, this is tragic, but any loss of life is tragic. Mm-hmm. So just because they didn't work at a school or they didn't work at a, 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 in another establishment doesn't mean that their life is any less valuable. Mm-hmm. The loss of life is the same. So we can't, we can't side on one area without recognizing the other area being equally important. Yeah, yeah. no, it's a, it's a really good point. I think, you know, how do you measure something that's been avoided, right? But I, I guess it's just the, the, the kids, which is so, 100%. you know, I guess helpless in those scenarios. Without a doubt. So that's, I was trying to think, well, oh, th- this is interesting, yeah. right? It's weird how the world works yeah. in the universe. Yesterday, I went to Capitol Building. Beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I loved reading the history of the yeah, yeah. images on the wall and stuff. It was incredible. But how odd that this happened a few hours after we'd been to the gun range. Oh. I met, essentially he was, I was just looking for a part, of the, the representative part of the building. I wanted to go and see where the floor was, where yeah, they yeah, yeah, yeah. make the decisions, right? Just because I love history. But I, I met someone who was kind of doing like security in the building. Oh, nice. And he's normally out in the field. He said he was, this is like a rotational week. So he's just here. He had this massive scar on his face here. Mm. And I said, listen, mate, I hope you don't mind me asking, like, <laughs> what happened? I kind of guessed. Yeah. But like, what happened? He's like, oh, I was shot. Oh, yeah. And he was shot by someone who was just like, I don't know what he'd done, but he was escaping, shooting out the back of his car. For sure. Caught the guy in the chin. Yeah. Went on to shoot uh, 21 people, seven died. Wow. So, so then with everything that was coming up yesterday, I was like, I've got to ask you, like, where do you stand on, on the gun law then? Like, what are your views on whether we should have guns or not? He's like, absolutely, we should have guns. <laughs> and I thought as a victim, you'd say, no, you shouldn't have a gun for this guy. Yeah. He said, yeah, because somebody else could have, would have shot him or stopped him right. if people had guns, right? Yeah. But then, I'm, but then I'm like, but what happened if there was no gun law? He wouldn't have had a gun in the first place. So it's kind of this chicken and egg thing, isn't it? Uh, but you're thinking that the criminal element would have followed the law to not have the gun. Unless unless we come, like here's another argument, and this is a good argument to have. What if we could go back in time and we could remove the existence of firearms from their beginning, mm. right? From the very beginning. And so therefore, you know, as we travel through history to current time, no guns exist, right? Would that mean that there would be no violence? No. So my point in all the subjects and all the discussions that I have is it's not about gun violence. It's about violence. And it's about trying to 
understand violence, why does violence occur? Well, in some cases, violence is premeditated and thought out. And a lot of times there's not a lot you can do about that. Other times it's spontaneous and it's reactive. And there are some things you can do about that. Mm. But the thing about violence is that it is part of our it's part of our DNA as humans, as animals. All animals have the capacity for violence. So if we were to eliminate guns, there still would be violence. And we're still going to we'll, – we would be having this conversation about swords or knives or yeah. axes. And if those didn't exist, we'd be having them about rocks and stones yeah. and tree limbs. Yeah. We would still be having these conversations. Yeah. They would just be about different tools. Mm, interesting. And that's the issue we have in the UK is knives. Oh, right? really? That's uh, right. A lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Look, I, I hope that's shifted some people's perspectives, right? I hope like, so too. I've I've learned so much being here, and thanks for for talking that out with me. I want to talk about seals. Oh, go for it! What do you got? We have obviously the special forces in the UK, SAS, yeah. SBS. Yes, but there's this sort of romantic kind of view on seals as well, right? <laughs> we hear the David Goggins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We hear the Jocko Willings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Leif Babins, yeah, all yeah. those guys. Yeah. You you mentioned. Goggins, you don't know, but he was like, you were training at the time in bus, yeah. right? Yeah. So he, I think he came through, came through about maybe five, six classes after I left okay. as an instructor. And you were teaching the buds training? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It was, it was my last duty station. It was an interesting tour of duty. I, I was not, I came from the East Coast operationally. And so when I moved out to the West Coast, because the, uh, for those that don't know, there's basically two coasts for the SEAL teams. There's the West Coast teams, the East Coast teams. The odd number teams are on the West Coast. The even numbers are on the East Coast. Mm. And even everything is so uh, compartmentalized. So, um, you know, even within the teams, there's still their own identities, but each coast has their own identity. Each team has their own identity. Each platoon has their own identity. Um, So when I moved out to the West Coast, I I wasn't excited about going to BUDS because my I always saw myself... As an operator, as a as the end user, the one that was out there doing doing what what we call God's work, hmm. and so it was kind of a tough shift for me mentally, you know, moving from that kind of mindset to the instructional mindset, and it was um, it was shortly after I got there that one of the senior enlisted the the master chief of the command, a good friend of mine, who later became a very good friend of mine. Um, Kind of schooled me. This is another. That's code word for lectured me on the um, the importance of the instructors there. That they are the gatekeepers that allow that only allow those that are worthy to enter the teams to be uh, you know member of the community. So that kind of made me a little bit more. I guess it made me feel a little bit more important at that point. What I mean by important is that it made me feel like that job was actually now more important to me. When I left the East Coast, I can remember checking out and going, we have to do a, um, each department you got to go through and check out. And, and, you know, the training command that I was assigned to at the time on the East Coast, the master chief there asked me, where are you going? I'm like, uh, I'm going out to Bud's. Mm-hmm. Not very excited in my tone, clearly. And he asked me, he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, well, you know, I just, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm an East Coast frog, you know, this is where I belong. I, I I need to be here doing this. And he got real quiet for a second. And then he stood up and I remember he like literally got up on his desk almost and just kind of got in my face and he's like, listen, you've occurred all that knowledge. You have all that experience, all that time downrange. You owe it to the community to give it back. Mm. And I was like, damn, <laughs> all 
All right. <laughs> so there. So I, I got schooled both on the East Coast and the West Coast of, as of the importance of my job going back out there. So mm-hmm. I, I was very lucky uh, because the time that I put in out there, the guys that went on to graduate and make it to the teams were the front, the tip of the spear for mm-hmm. the for the guys downrange. And a lot of those guys, you know, several of them didn't make it back. When you say downrange, do you mean on tours? Yeah. 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 How long were you in the seals? Uh, a little bit over 12 years. 12 years. Yeah. And how long did you do the training in Buds? Three-year tour. Three-year tour. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And what about the Jocko Willinks? Did you know Jocko? Uh, no. He came through, uh, like, I want to think he was, like, my Buds class number, he was, like, I want to think he's, like, five or six classes after me. Yeah, yeah I think so. Okay. Yeah, he's... He's weathered just like me. <laughs> but now I'm, I, I hate to say it, but now I'm like, oh my God, I'm the old guy now. Oh, nice. it's just so depressing. <laughs> I can remember back thinking, no, I'll never be that guy. <laughs> so here I am as the old guy. <laughs> With all the knowledge and wisdom. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yes, this is true. I guess there is the, that, that's the cost. That's the, uh, the, I guess the reward, yeah. not necessarily the cost, the reward. For yeah. Sure. yeah. So what are some of the things, because, you know, particularly one of the quotes that I said to you, which I learned from the SEALs Mm -hmm. yesterday, which you can talk to in a moment. Um, But as well as that, what are some of the things like key takeaways in 13 years being a Navy SEAL? So like for me, when I first joined the Navy, the reason why I went into the the SEAL teams was I, I wanted to prove to myself that I could be the best. And I tell this to people. Best what, Jeff? I, I wanted to be, like at the time I saw... I wanted to be the best within the military. And that was, at the time, the SEAL teams. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to prove to myself that I had what it takes to to be that and to to carry that honor. What I learned probably within the first, because once I made it to the SEAL teams, I was very fortunate that... um, as a new guy, I went. I was one of the first guys. This is back during the Cold War, so there wasn't a lot of war, and I was very lucky that I was involved in combat in the very early stages of my career. So it kind of forged me in my mindset as far as what I believed and what I learned was, while I came in for selfish reasons to prove to myself that I could be the best, um, it was that first deployment where we lost teammates, and it was. It was at that moment that I recognized that the reason why I'm here is because of the man on the left and the man on my right. Mm. And it changed my perspective to being like, now my job is to serve them, mm. to be the very best that I can be to protect them. And our, and our, you know, the government is going to you know, choose to send us wherever we need to go. My job is not to question that. My job is to protect the man on the left and protect the man on the right. And the only way I can do that is by being the very best that I can be. So my it sounds like it's the same, but it became more of a selfless service mm-hmm. to the men left and right of me. And that changed my my perspective dramatically. And and I, you know, it would have been nice if I would have gone into the navy with that perspective, but that just wasn't in the cards for me. At that time I was young and very full of piss and vinegar. And that was <laughs> the that was that was how it was. I mean, I still am, but you know, again, it was it was shortly thereafter that I really re- rethought my purpose. It's funny how much of those things just take place in here, in, <laughs> in our mind, right? Oh, yeah. Nothing changes on the surface, mm-hmm. right? But just that subtle shift from I'm here for me to prove myself to mm-hmm. whoever that needed to be, right? It might be a dad, it might be a friend, it might Absolutely. be a, the world, who mm-hmm. knows? And then, right, rather than 
being here for myself to prove myself i'm actually here for these other people yeah. a reason outside of myself but it's so easy to say that oh it's quite a quippy little thing isn't it it is but and, and it changes everything it does and uh, you know it it actually drove me to do more than i thought i could have done mm. doing things for myself is one thing but doing things for somebody else to be better to make to you know to do the the extra lap uh, on the run or to do you know extra lifts in the gym to spend more time on the range to do more time you know with perfecting my craft my skills there was a like like there was a time period where i just lived i slept you know we, we joke seal stands for you know sleep eat and lift uh and then repeat but that literally was living that life like everything i did could be assimilated into my job like even off even my recreational stuff i would go out i would go and do things i would either go skydiving or i would go rock climbing i would do things that i did in the navy but i would do them recreationally because mm -hmm. i wanted to continue to perfect my craft what does seals really stand for sea air and land sea air and land yeah okay amazing yeah. so fascinating so you said like about your skills what are the skills of a seal Oof, man that is a very complex question okay. because we're we have and i saw this even towards the end of my career we have evolved to a very multifaceted organization where you know we've always you know as the name implies we're supposed to be able to do our job both in the sea well technically our insertion method was through the sea through the air through the land mm -hmm. so we had to be competent in all those environments and it's a complicated aspect to be able to do that so I guess one way to think about that answer is to kind of share with you the different positions within a traditional SEAL platoon. You know, you would have... Which, by the way, for context, is an incredibly high-performing team, right? Yeah. Which could be translated to business. Yeah, to absolutely. Sport, 100%. Yeah. I mean, so, and it's so funny you mentioned that because I did not realize at the time that the lessons that I was being exposed to, the lessons that I was learning, and then the lessons that I would further teach were so relevant in the world, the real world. Like it really took me a while to digest that. Um, so, you know, within a traditional SEAL platoon, you have departments, you have your ordnance department, which is responsible for all of the guns and the bombs and stuff like that. Then you have your medical department, which are the ones that do all the aid and they train us to self-aid and stuff. And then you have the communications department, which is the radios that give us the bigger guns that allow us to really put the pain on people. Then you have the diving, which is all the stuff that happens in the water above or below. Then you have the air, which is everything that happens from the air down to the land. And then you have our engineering, which is kind of like the, the land aspect of everything. So you know that's that's just one that's one platoon each each platoon will have a department head and an assistant department so you know you have collateral duties that fulfill all of that and that's just those departments then within there you have an assaulter you have a breacher you have a sniper you have all these other duties that you know over time you just accumulate you know, as you as you move in your career, you either stay in one area or you continue to branch out and, and kind of like fulfill other other gaps in your portfolio, if you will. Like there's usually you walk into a platoon hut, there'd be this qualification board and on it, it would have each member of the platoon and every one of the quals that existed at the time. And, 
the, obviously the more senior guys had more of those qualifications than the junior guys. But that was ultimately, you know, a well-rounded platoon would have all those quals dialed in at least by a quarter or more of the platoon. And that, that gave you, okay, those guys know what they're doing because you can just look at the experience through that qualifications board and know, okay, they've got what they need. So it's kind of hard to give a specific definition. So what what would make a really strong, because it's like units, right? You were Mm. telling me yesterday. Mm. And how many people in a unit? So well, when a, now a SEAL team is here in the States and then when they deploy, they become a task unit. Task unit. Yeah, Yeah. a task unit. So, um, when they leave, you know, a SEAL team is going to have about five platoons. Sometimes they can have more or less. It just depends on the retention and some medical issues and okay. stuff like that. And then they'll have the support personnel, all the departments that support the, the active SEALs. So, you know, it could be probably about 100 guys or more mm. in a task unit going downrange. And, that's, wow. a, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a completely autonomous fighting force, meaning that that has... That unit has everything they need to find them, you know, to embed in a location and and then just do whatever it is they need to do. They have all the assets. And that was a change. That was a subtle change that we saw between the classical experience that, you know, the basically the Vietnam era uh, SEALs coming back. We had regions that we would, uh, like, each team had their own AO, area of operation, and that would be what you specialized in. So there would be one team that would be Central and South America, one team that would be Northern Europe, one team that would be Africa, one team that would be the Mediterranean, and they all specialized in that environment. And then with time, we realized, okay, well, that's only 100 guys. That's not nearly enough to manage a theater in like a full-blown theater of war. And so what they ended up doing was they ended up starting to rotate and and now everybody became competent in all those different environments. So if if war did break out in one of those unique areas, it wasn't just that one team that could have the capacity to support, but all the teams that could rotate in and support through mutual aid or, you know, I mean, you know, war takes its toll. We usually rotate in for six months, maybe, maybe nine at the most, and then a new team comes in and replaces them. Mm. Okay, really interesting. So maybe we go down. It's a really good trade of thought. So what's the what's the standout qualities or what's important in a task unit that performs particularly well? Like if if there's one that stands out, what are they doing differently? <laughs> Man, that's a good question. I think really it's the it's it's a combination of things. It's a combination of the leadership and it's a combination of the senior enlisted. So the leadership the 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 real top leaders, the guys like Ajako, yeah. they have a an ability to recognize the talent of the people around them and exploit that talent mm. to its to its fullest. And those are the leaders that have the capacity to actually extend beyond, say, a, a fictitious boundary because they know how to tap into their people and they know how to push those boundaries. Then you have those other guys that are the senior enlisted guys that are more um, the backbone, if you will, and they are the ones that keep the gears turning in a sense. They, they're they the ones that are constantly working. So the more of those senior enlisted guys you have that you, leadership can then exploit, that creates a very 
synergistic and lethal combination, mm. very much so. So, you know, that was always something that, you know, you, you look for. Like as a senior enlisted, I look to see what's the leadership capabilities and qualities that I have above me. And I was very lucky. I was blessed when I look back at this that I had some amazing leaders that I learned so much from. I, I look back and I'm like, oh, I learned that from Marty. Oh, I learned that from Bob. Oh, I learned, you know, I, I can literally pinpoint exactly where some of these traits I learned from hmm. because I had such great leaders as a very young, impressionable frogman. And then when I stepped up into a senior enlisted position and then I got to work with other good leaders, it just, now you see how it all works. So what would be, if you're happy to share a couple of those lessons, like you said, was one Bob and one something. Oh else. yeah, like, okay. What? So I was on a, uh, was on a CQB trip. A CQB for us is an assault program basically. And it's usually about four weeks long. We go to these kill houses. Now they call them shoot houses. And, you know, you go through a training program of what we call flat range, which is all the pistol and rifle or subgun work that you do to kind of prep to go into the shoot house. And I can remember like the senior guys were just smoking it. I mean, they just, like, because they've, they've done this before. Mm -hmm. As a new guy, my first time being out there, I mean, it's like drinking from a fire hose. So much that you're responsible for. And it's real because, I mean, we've got live demo, we've got live, live fire evolution. So it's real. And unfortunately, we, we talked about this yesterday, you know, Combat is, is very risky, very dangerous, but training for combat is also risky and dangerous. So we've lost lives in training accidents as well. So I remember I went through and I was just making mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. And fi you know, like um, my sea daddy, the guy that's kind of like in charge of me as a new guy, pulls me aside and he was like, you know what you're not doing? I'm like, what? You're not thinking. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's no time to think. You gotta, you gotta go. You gotta go. There's no time to think. And he's like, you're not capable of going like that. You have to think. And it took me, and he said it maybe not as polite as I just said it, <laughs> but he, the, the point that he was trying to make was that as a, as a newer member of the platoon, I was trying to move at the same speed, trying to look like those guys mm. were operating at. And I was nowhere near that, nowhere near that. So I literally had to pump the brakes and think my way through every problem. And it slowed things down to an uncomfortable crawl. These guys want to move at their normal speed. I was the only new guy in the platoon. So everybody was waiting on me always. Hmm. But the value, what that allowed me to do was not only was, and, and it became kind of interesting too, because once I could slow myself down, and that's another problem that I have, you know, I'm like Jojo the monkey boy. I cannot sit still. I cannot, you know, like I want to go at hundred miles an hour with my hair on fire. So trying to go slow is like, I would almost say borderline torture for me, mm. but I got just, you know, I was making mistake after mistake after mistake. And I could not, I could not keep up with these guys. And, 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 and I knew in the back of my mind, I knew I was failing them. And that's when I started to like, okay, the other thing that you'd never want is you never want to be kicked out because you can't do your job. Mm -hmm. And I was worried at one point that I wasn't good enough. Now I made it through BUDS. And what we tell people is like BUDS is just a filter system. The real training starts when you get to the teams. Yeah. 
And so like, here I am, I made it through buds, did great. And now I'm like, oh my God, now I am sucking. And, uh, you know, that, that conversation that I had was pivotal in my shift in mindset because it, it really forced me to slow things down. And the way that they would say it is think your way through these problems. You know, you have all the tools, you know what to do, but you have to think your way through them. So when, uh, that was like a very painful trip for me because that was four weeks of having to move at such a slow pace, knowing that these guys are just like, oh, like, like nails on a chalkboard, every <laughs> run. Nobody would like, I can remember looking over my shoulder when it would be like time for us to do a, a run and the guys would stack up and, and like, you know, the chief and the LPO would be like, like they're motioning for guys, go do it. You know, they, the guys didn't want to go because it was so painful for them to go so slow. But, you know, the senior leadership was like, no, no, get over there and, and teach them. So it's so good, Jeff. Absolutely, I, was, because I was that guy. When I, but you have to be, you yeah. start somewhere, right? Yeah. You're always going to, everyone's go, been that guy. Yeah, for sure. And I think like what was coming to mind as you were telling the story was the thinking through part is so critical because that's when you're forming the habit in your mind, right? You're forming yes. the neural pathway. Yes. You're forming the physical so habit. True. Yeah. Whereas those guys already had that. Oh yeah. It was so habitual. It's so true. But we have to give ourselves space to find it. Well, that was the thing. I was so impatient. We talked about this too. Like my level of impatience is like record high. Hmm. And I had to like, like I, I really had to learn patience as a new guy. And, and it's even through the rest of my career, I'd have to still understand patience. But it took me years before I really put what you just described together, mm. that I had to go slow enough to be able to create the proper neural pathways. And the way I explain it, like today, fast forward now, when I'm teaching CQB to guys, and the reason why it's so important to go slow is because we're trying to create those neural pathways that will, at some point, un in real life conditions, we all are having to make decisions, life or death decisions in split seconds. And the, the ability to make those split-second decisions and then be correct or accurate enough is the, is the true mark of a professional. Yeah. Every, everybody can do that job, but to be able to make those split-seconds of decisions that mean life or death and do them right, yeah. that's the trick. So when you start off going slow and create those neural pathways, what it allows you to do is it allows you to make those decisions in real time that are... I don't like to say correct because a lot of times they were just good enough to get the job done, but that's the difference yeah. is that they were applied quickly enough to get the job done. Which is why in the quote that I alluded to earlier, yeah. which we spoke about yesterday is so perfect, yeah. which I stole from the seals, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. 100%. Right. And yeah. I think that is so relevant today where I tell all of my clients that quote yeah. because myself included. I used to run myself into the ground. I had a pattern every couple of years. I make myself ill because I, I just <laughs> yeah. did too much because yeah. A, it's so exciting. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I want all the yeah. opportunities. Oh, 100%. But then there's all, at that period in my life, there, it was some of it was coming from a bad place and I, it didn't matter. Yeah. I was so value driven towards getting the status or yes. you know, feeling that validation yes. that I would do anything to get it, yes. even run myself into the ground. 100%. And, and I'm not saying that everyone's coming from that place, but yeah. I think a lot of us are like charging a million miles an hour trying to achieve our yes. potential, yes. which causes us to crash. So, and I, I can remember hearing that phrase early on in my career too. And the, the thing that I try to get across to people is that there's a, there's a unique aspect to that because what, what you're really doing is you're training your mind to see things 
in real time that you would not have seen because they're happening too fast for you to perceive them. You train yourself to see those. Those little details make the difference. And when I'm teaching like a student, even in this, like I can remember uh, one of the biggest problems that we have trying to teach somebody this is to try to help them to understand that you need to go slow to go fast. Mm. Like that's the dichotomy. I need you to go slow so that you can eventually go fast, but you're never going to try it. You're never going to get to going fast and making those correct split second life decision, life, life altering decisions. That was the hard part to get across to people is that, you know, see your, your decisions being like made rather than like make your decisions for yourself versus them being made because you, you have no control over them. That was the other thing is like, you're just going so fast that you have no control over anything that's happening. And that's where accidents happen. And you end up being like really reactive instead of oh, 100%. proactive. Absolutely. And, yeah. 100%. That's the other thing is like, you live in a constant state of reaction. And we learned this early on that proaction is always going to be faster and more accurate than reaction. So by being able to see that in my mind's eye, the other things that start to happen is we start talking about like assaults, you start to become anticipatory. Like you start to you you start to see these things happening before they actually happen, whether it's like a good thing or a bad thing. Like you can start to see something happening and take action before you react to that. And that is such a huge difference, particularly in those life or death type situations. Yeah, incredible. And I think that leads really nicely onto the the question I wanted to ask. What's that? What I loved about our conversation yesterday was when you spoke to me about the Forgive me, I'm going to forget his name, but Colonel, someone who created the oh, color coding. Yeah, Colonel Cooper. Yeah, 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 yeah. Colonel Cooper. Yes, yes. Thank you. Could you just explain yeah, yeah. that process? Because I think it really tells us about everyday reaction, doesn't it? For sure. So um, the late Colonel Cooper, Colonel Jeff Cooper, uh, he was a former Marine colonel, um, and he came up with a color code. He And actually, history, like I was very fortunate that I got to work with him at Gunsight when he was still alive. And um, he basically brought back to life this, this color system to denote a mental awareness. And we now use it for what we call situational awareness. And there are there were more color codes, but most people know them four color codes, which is white, yellow, orange, and red. And white typically denotes um, unalert, unprepared, unaware. And I usually remind people of the feeling when they wake up in the morning. That's pretty much condition white. Then there's condition yellow, which is a relaxed alert, relaxed aware. Then there's Condition orange, which is more of a focused alert. And then there's condition red, which is the actual execution of your reaction to whatever the stimulus is producing. Mm -hmm. And like the way that I kind of help people to understand that is like when you are in white, you can, there are times to be in white. You you have to be able to be in white. It's, It's rest and recovery time. That's white. So people that say, oh, I'll never be in condition white. That's, you know, I can improve my safety by just never being in white. It's a nice thought, but it's not possible. You you will have to at some point decompress. And that's where condition white comes in. But condition yellow is an is a is a it's a mindset that you can maintain for extended periods of time because all of these require mental energy. And the higher up you go, the more mental energy you need. So they're taxing physically, mentally. 
Um, when you get to yellow, yellow is one that's kind of like easy going in a sense, like you're aware of everything that's happening around you. You may not be focused on it, but you're aware of it. And that's huge because that allows you to kind of pick up on some pre-fight indicators. And those pre-fight, and we have a saying that it's not who has, it's not who's the best on the battlefield. It's not who's the best trained, the best equipped, the best mission. It's who sees who first. A lot of times that that dictates the outcome of that gunfight. Mm. So situational awareness and being able to pick up on those pre-fight indicators is huge. Seeing a reflection in the, in, you know, or seeing a shadow, a reflection in the pond, or you know, maybe somebody's foot poking out from around the corner. These are those types of situational awareness cues, pre-fight cues, that if you're not paying attention, you wouldn't see them. But it's not like you're also looking for them. You're just aware of what's happening. Yeah. And as you move from yellow, yellow, you pick up on something, right? You pick up on maybe you saw a shadow. And so that shadow is like, hmm, that catches my attention. So now my broad focus goes to a narrow focus. And now I'm really kind of like zooming in on what's creating that shadow. Is it, is it a tree or is it a person? Is it something I need to be concerned about or is it not something that's going to worry me? But that's what condition orange is. And condition orange is also where you start to make kind of like some what if decisions. Like what if this happens? If then if so, this happens, then I'll do that kind of thing. So if that is a person, I'm going to do this. I'm going to back out and go around. If that is uh, a robber, I'm going to you know move over to the other side of the street. Whatever you know, you have the, the condition orange is where you start to think about these things. Condition red is where you take action. Hmm. So whatever you were thinking about doing, like if I round that corner and the shadow turns out to be a person, okay, I back out and I move to the other side of the street. Hmm. Whatever, but that's the act. It's the line in the sand that then you take action once you get to that point. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's it's super valuable. And it's another thing that you're gonna float up and down all throughout your day. You know, you're gonna you're gonna be maybe in condition yellow when you're in your vehicle. Maybe, you know, somebody hits the brakes in front of you really fast and you immediately jump up to red. So you can also bypass some of these mm. colors. And we talked yesterday about the difference between uh, the two types of events, which is a, a, a surprise event, which we call an ambush, and a boiling event, which is something that you can see happening. What happens in an ambush is that you get caught in condition white. And that means that you're in a reactionary mode. And the bad guy has the upper edge. And it's very hard to come out from behind that power, that eight ball. Very hard. But if you can see the events starting to unfold, so you, you know, you... Jeff says, okay, anytime I leave the house, I go from white to yellow. So I'm in yellow and I start to see some of these pre-fight indicators. I start to pay more attention. I start making a plan so that when all of a sudden that thing happens, I'm a little bit prepared for it. Mm. And I used to, you know, again, going back to some of my military training, one of the things that I did is I studied terrorist acts and I studied thousands of terrorist acts going way back to the fifties. And I would look for, um, patterns or trends or anything that we could use to help create force protection measures to save our guys. And one of the things that I noticed was that if you if you look at the color code, so if you if you're surprised, you're going to go into this like kind of like paralysis mode where you're like, you know, you kind of like it takes a second for you to kick, you know, for your instincts and survival to kick in and start doing the right thing. It takes a second and we talk earlier that you may not have those seconds. So if you look at the color code as kind of like a, um, kind of like going back in time, right? So, so red is 
when the attack occurs. Then you go back maybe two seconds and that's orange. You go back maybe three or four seconds and that's yellow. And you go back maybe 10 seconds and that's white. So now you're kind of like, you start at white and you realize, okay, I'm leaving this building. I go from white to yellow. And then all of a sudden you see something starting to unfold. You know, time's getting a little bit closer to the act. You change your mind about maybe I'm going to go to the other side of the street. Maybe I'm going to wait. And then all of a sudden you see the guy. Now you decide to go to the other side of the street kind of thing. All of that is action. If you did not have any of that awareness and that attack occurs, that kind of paralysis that you go through, and we all go through it. I mean, nobody's impervious to it. Whether or not you can react well enough to take action that's going to actually have a positive outcome, that's a hard one to say. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I try to explain the color code using that kind of like going back in time analogy so that you can kind of see how it really yeah. works in real time and how valuable it is for everybody to be, you know, even no matter what, even when you're driving a car, being situationally aware using the color code, yeah. so helpful. Thank you, Jeff. Amazing, amazing to hear that. Um, applicable to everyone, no matter the circumstance. I certainly think, you know, when you mentioned about the energy expenditure per level on the code, right? Yeah. Becoming a parent. <laughs> yeah, like my my awareness is heightened yes. and I feel I feel tired because of the lack of sleep and all that stuff anyway, but Already. your your stimulus is like constantly going off because you are now responsible for someone outside oh of yourself all the time. And you know what's so interesting about being a parent too is that uh, you you know you kind of do get these like superpowers and you know it's a lot of it has to do with just again being situationally aware like other people will like if you've watched some of these videos about like you know dad saves the day and you know there'll be this little toddler on a on a little trike running down you know she's just going down the driveway and there's a car coming and then you see a dad come into the view and yeah. grab her in the nick of time yeah. right well a lot of those are just because those those individuals were, were situationally aware. They started to see something happening. They kind of started to think, oh, you know what, that's probably going to end badly. And I, they start to actually already mentally make note of what they're going to do. Yeah. So when they decide to do it, they're already well into it. Oh, man. So that resonates. Like, yeah. I remember this time where yeah. my daughter was, she was quite young at this point, and she was kind of near the edge of the sofa. We were around her yes. cousin's house. And I was kind of like, oh, like, you can't, I've got my one eye on it. And as she started to roll over, I like leapt. Yes. Full like baseball catch. Yes. Put my head under her, uh, put my hand under her head, like rolled yeah. and just caught like that. Like she didn't have a clue. Yeah, of course on. not. Yeah. And I was like, did anyone see how good that was? <laughs> <laughs> of course, nobody Nobody saw did. It. Yeah. yeah. No. I had almost an exact same, same, almost exact when I was feeding my oldest, I think. And uh, mom was sleeping. It was early in the morning and we had these rugs on a um, hardwood floor and they didn't have any kind of tape underneath them. So I stand up from the sofa real quick like and I take a step on that carpet, that rug, and it just went boom. Mm. And I went up in the air. My baby went up in the air. And I can remember watching the baby starting to fall. And I literally just got my hand underneath his head just in time for him to hit the ground. And I was like... Oh my God. But what's funny is like, before I got up, I was thinking to myself, oh, you know what? I have to secure this rug and I still Mm -hmm. haven't done that. So in my head, I already had thought like, okay, this rug is kind of like sketchy, but I still got up and stepped on it and it slid right out from underneath me. And that was almost enough. Exactly. Exactly. It's funny because that's kind of the other end of the scale to the think it through message that you got from one of your leaders, right? Yes. Think it all through. And then there's a comfort almost, isn't there? In like, 
even if shit does hit the fan, like there's an instinct built into us that yeah. we can like, yeah. of course we need both. Of we course, both. absolutely. But, you know, absolutely. It's nice to know that's there. Absolutely. I hundred percent like that. And you know, it's funny because I think instincts are honed through experience mm. and you know, like, like a lot of times that instinct that you're talking about is somebody that's been there enough times to actually be able to feel it about to happen. Like literally feel it. Yeah. And that, that, that to me is like, it's, it's, it's awesome. And you, you know, you get to that, you do the job enough, you get that feeling, yeah. you know, what's right and what's wrong. I, I can't speak to like the military experience, mm. but certainly like my sporting background has given me an understanding of my body enough to know and have an awareness, like even silly things like crossing the road, right? <laughs> I have like awareness of the environment and like how things move and what I'm capable of. Yeah. And that's why I just think it's so important to get people into those things. I agree. Yeah. I hope that uh, folks can appreciate that too. I mean, it's it's the simplest of things. Mm. It really it takes no effort. Well, it does take a little bit of effort, but in the grand scheme of things, it takes a lot less effort than you might think. Yeah. Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure. Man. Oh, it's been my pleasure. No, Thank truly. You, like I know that, so Joey um, messaged me to come onto your podcast. Uh, Thank like, you, Joey, by the way. Shout you, out Joey. to Joey. Yeah. Um, like sort of like really last minute and I'm so pleased we made it work. <laughs> I can't believe. I'm so pleased we yeah, made it work. Yeah, it worked out great. We'd, we've been smiling to ourselves, Aaron and I this week at the amount of things that have happened with like a very small interaction, which have then led to the most incredible experiences. For sure. Absolutely. And just, I think being open to that, that, you know, we then had the podcast got on really well. Yeah. We, we just said about wanting to go and shoot guns. Yeah, and yeah. Like I had no idea that was your experience. Like you literally <laughs> were, you trained people in this stuff and then you were kind enough to take it yeah. and it's led to this. So yeah, uh, yeah great way to end our, our spectacular trip. So thank you. Well, I am very, I'm very happy that I got to be the last little part of this trip and I'm excited for you guys. I can't wait for you guys to come back. Oh man, me neither. <laughs> It'll be soon. It'll good, be soon. good, good. I look forward to it. All right. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. Thank you. You have reached your destination. Hey, it's Mark Whittle. Thanks so much for watching or listening. It's so great to have you a part of the Take Flight movement. Subscribe to the podcast on all platforms, video and audio, to be the first to see new episodes and new conversations with the greatest minds in the world. Follow me at markwhittle underscore TF on all social platforms and visit takeflightworld.com to join our growing community of hustlers, performers and go-getters. I can't wait to see you next time. Until then, Stay positive, stay motivated, and of course, take flight.